The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Star Trek is boldly going to music halls, where no nerd has gone before. The 40 plot holes in Star Wars The Force Awakens by Huffington Post has awakened the Gundar and Hollywood screenwriter Matt Granger. He joins us to talk about the age of idiot journalism. The petitions are coming in fast and furious from David Bowie fans. Some want a constellation named after him. Others, cold hard cash. But we'll tell you about the petition that could bring Starman back to Earth. Plus, the bionic woman turns 40 and will tell you the best whiskeys with which you can drown your middle-aged sorrows over that fact. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Are you ready to boldly go where no musical has gone before? I am surprised that we have this Star Trek musical tour. The 50th anniversary is coming up. I think the show, yeah, it was... 19? Yeah, it is the 50th. And we've had Derek Dresser over at geeksandbeats.com doing an extensive view from the bridge. <laughs> yes, that's been very good. I've been very entertained, very entertained by that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the original series, you'll see that music figured in very prominently. In fact, I did a post on that on my site, a journal of musical things, showing how music was woven in, in, into the show in, in, in very interesting ways. Uh, you know, not only that iconic Alexander Courage opening theme, but uh, music popped up in, well, let's just say that there were some cheesier moments that may, were made all the much more cheesier by the music that they used. Voyage opened this past weekend at West Palm Beach, 100 North American cities in a tour that runs through May, featuring the music of Jerry Goldsmith, Gerald Fried, uh, Jay Chataway, Dennis McCarthy, Mark McKenzie, and Cliff Eidelman. I just hope that Captain Kirk himself does not grab a microphone. Oh, he will. I guarantee you, if he is asked... Listen, I know the man. Uh, I know you do. You went on tour with him, but it was a speaking tour. I've heard his music. His music is not very good. Mr. Tambourine Man. the end of every show he sang a song saying was that in quotes did i hear air quotes in your voice you did hear air quotes there he, um, he continues to do this one-man show without me and uh, at the end he does end it with a song okay would you pay the 200 dollars for a ticket i'm not really sure there are those concerts that show that that, that uh, do video game music and some of the other stuff i don't know if i would do it uh well, maybe I might. If I got comped, I might go. All right, Alan, have you now finally seen the Star Wars movie? I have not. Uh, I am. Uh, don't spoil anything for me here. Oh, uh, we're totally going to spoil it. Totally well, going to spoil it. Well, go ahead. I don't really care. Well, there is this thing making the rounds on the Intertron. Uh, ever since the film came out, uh, Huffington Post put out this 40 giant plot hole thing. Uh, and it was 
first of all, as a, as a Star Wars nerd, it made me mad because I didn't feel like the guy had actually read the article. And then um, Matty Granger of, had written this big, long article. And this was a guy who was uh, he's in the film industry. You can you can go to the Internet Movie Database, pull him up. He's got a, a remarkable CV associated with Hollywood. And he wrote at long last my Star Wars Episode seven review, The Force Awakens and the Rise of Idiot Journalism. And it goes through every single one of the 40 things on the list of uh, the, the plot holes that aren't actually plot holes. And so I thought, who better to talk about Star Wars and totally spoil the film for you <laughs> than Matty Granger himself? Matty, good to have you with us. No, thank you very much. Okay. That, but it's okay because I am, as Michael will tell you, a Star Trek person. This Star Wars thing is a mere sideshow for me. <laughs> That's how I see Star Trek. That's so convenient. <laughs> so of the, the, the 40 items, is there any one that particularly stands out to you of the plot holes that aren't actually plot holes? Well, you know, they all stood out in their own unique way to me, I guess. But I think that the one that I had the biggest problem with was... Or do you mean like favorite one? I love debunking it because it was so ridiculous. Which do you prefer? <laughs> well, I, I suspect because it's most ridiculous. Because you can punch e easily punch holes through every single one of these uh, forty plot yeah. holes, alleged plot holes. You know, what? I like I like the tough one. Uh, the tough one is number forty, where the guy accused uh, the Star Wars movie of being a complete and utter ripoff of the original Star Wars movie, A New Hope, and it's simply not true. Um, it, you know, it does follow some similar story beats along the way. You know, I don't want to spoil it, spoil it for poor Alan, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they start on a desert planet and then they have to blow up a Death Star type thing. Right. Sounds familiar. Yeah, sounds pretty familiar at first. But if you really look at it, there's two ways of looking at that plot hole for me. Film is a strange thing. It, film is, a, is this amazing marriage of commerce and art and when they make these movies what they're doing is trying to please both sides of that equation um yes it does hit similar story beats yes there is a robot that's got a a secret clue hidden inside it yes they start on a desert planet and leave the desert planet on the millennium falcon yes they do have to blow up a death star like device at the end of the movie but I believe that they've done this for two reasons. I think that there is a legitimate repetition going on for, in the sake of the art, Mike Klimo, this writer, Mike Klimo, a friend of mine, wrote a great article on Star Wars that was called Star Wars Ring Theory, and I linked to it in my article, um, where these movies do have uh, plot rings that go through them, where, where events continue to occur and repeat themselves and go over themselves. And when you read his dissertation, the thing is massive. Like, you have to read it. Um, you'll see that it's very likely a writing technique that's been employed here in order to do that. The one that appeals to me is number two on the list, which uh, it reads from the uh, HuffPo article, the wily Han Solo loses track of his most prized possession, the Millennium Falcon, for more than a dozen years, and yet less than a minute after Ray begins piloting the Millennium Falcon, Han looks out the window of his freighter and says, oh, there it is. They were blowing through hyperspace. Who knows how far they'd gone at that point? You don't know how much time has passed. It's if, if Han Solo is the guy who wants to find the Falcon again, there's going to be some sort of sensor on that ship that says, oh, my God, dude, the, the Falcon's flying through hyperspace right now. It's going to be by here any second. 
And he did. As a matter of fact, I had seen the film this afternoon for the second time with my daughter, knowing that you had gone through this list. Yeah. And he had pointed out that the sensor, his sensors had picked it up. So yeah. if his sensors picked up the Falcon, of course, uh, the bad guy's sensors would do so as well. Exactly. But despite the entire list of the 40 items that we're looking at here, what appealed to me the most out of your article was not necessarily the rundown point for point, but it was the idea that some jackass millennial who's only interested in hater culture who clearly didn't really watch the movie with yeah. any intensity whatsoever put this together but by the end of the article you come to realize it's not some millennial who's writing a clickbait article it's a guy who has no excuse for the way he's conducting himself not at all and that was the most disappointing part to me was when i read who he was all right let's throw seth abramson the assistant professor of english at the university of new hampshire and a graduate at harvard law school under the bus negativity is very easy to do you know, negativity is a is a very easy thing to run to when you don't when you want to get li likes on Facebook type thing. Positivity is difficult. You know, it's not easy to be positive about everything. It's easy to go, oh yeah, that sucked, and here's a bunch of reasons why. But what disappointed me the most about that is that a journalist in his position should be concerned with raising the bar and not lowering it. And that's one of the things that bothered me the most about it was that. He took his responsibility as a well-educated writer and just lowered the lower common, lowest common denominator and appealed to stupidity and appealed to negativity. And, I, and that in itself is the biggest crime of all. You know, it, that's... It's stupid. Alan, you must enc encounter this in music writing as well. Oh, all the time. There are people who just want attention. So what they'll do... Yeah for no particular reason, other than the fact that they know that they're going to get a bunch of clicks on their outrageous thesis. They'll say something dumb uh, from a pseudo-academic point of view, and then just sit back and watch um, everybody fight about things. My, my wife is dealing with this right now with the movie, with the TV show Outlander. And apparently the two characters, the two main characters, um, are there's there's two factions on the internet one faction says that the two actors are actual lovers and other people the other faction says that they are nothing but uh well they're acting and the way that the, what people are writing on the internet uh, on tumblr accounts it, it's it's insane and it's all just a, 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 a sad cry for attention do you find that your, your background in film sort of you know, forced you to get involved in this little bun fight in a way yeah um it wasn't necessarily my background in the film industry and the amount of films I've worked on that really drove me to do it. It was more of – my brother and I are screenwriters as well. We have our first feature being made this year. Um, and I, we agonize over story, you know? And I think that when you understand story and you understand what uh, characters do in a movie and you understand what a plot does in a movie – then that needs to be defended. Most certainly, screenwriting is a difficult task. And if you, can just, if you just go after a movie for the sake of going after it, then you haven't done your work. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. That's why I felt it, because I understand story. I understand movies. I know how to read them. I know how to write them. And I know how to watch them. There's a certain degree of responsibility that comes 
to all of us as the consumers, not the producers uh, of this sort of thing. When you forward that HuffPo article uh, at the end of the day, you are contributing to the hater culture, the negativity. Yeah. Like the number of times I've seen people on Facebook retweet something, barely even reading it, uh, and it's easily debunked by going to Snopes or what have you, or just by simply looking at it with a critical eye. Or reading the article that's linked to, to the Twitter post. Right, yeah. Exactly. Not just the not just the headline, which is what yes. most people, yeah. But I can imagine in your line of work, it's just that much easier because it's that much more accessible. Yeah, very much so, yeah. When it comes to Alan seeing the film, yeah. what is the one plot hole that did stand out that you're going to have to tell him about so that he doesn't focus on it at the end of the day? I got to say that there actually is one, and it's not on his list, surprisingly <laughs> enough. In the movie, for some reason, the giant super laser planet that they've created yes. sucks, sucks the energy of the sun out. When a sun disappears, <laughs> gravity, okay. gravity kind of goes away. That would leave all kinds of gravitational ripples that would send everything into sheer chaos immediately. Yeah, yeah, it would. So that is a, and you know what? I've, I've done this thing in my brain that, <laughs> that I've just patched the hole for myself. And what I, what I have come to terms with is that they've had to shoot this, this laser off twice. This laser shoots twice and they're about to shoot it a second time. So they've shot it off once already after draining the sun once. Clearly they have to drain the sun a second time to do it again. Perhaps that they can drain the sun down to a certain point where the nuclear reactions continue to happen and it regenerates itself over amount of time, explaining why they're on a snow planet. Is it a dark snow planet? No, sorry. They're not on a snow planet. That was a, that was a, that was a oh, spoiler. spoiler. No. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. Sorry. I, well, the, the spoiler for me was R2-D2 uh, at a certain point in the film comes to life. And. Okay. Okay. Stop. 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 I don't want to hear any more. And all I could think is, all I could think is, does Princess Leia not have, does Princess Leia not have a Best Buy she can go in and download the kid's memory from? Like, this is a robot. Plug it into the USB port for crying out loud. I would think that R2-D2 being the loyal droid he is. If you ever want me to go see that, no, no. If you want me, wait, if you want me to go see this movie, you're not going to talk. Has taken whatever information he's got inside of him. Just diced it up into a million untraceable bits. <laughs> He's running Tor. <laughs> and has, that only he can access. He is also the most fiercely loyal, fiercely loyal droid we're talking about here. So I think that there's a good, good chance that R2 knew what he was doing. And I would also, I would also hazard a guess to say that um, Luke can somehow have some sort of force-like communication with his robot and said, okay, I sense, I'm sensing what's going on out oh. there. Oh, I don't know about the force-like connection to the robot. I do think, however, that there is a connection between Luke and the primary, the, the lead character of the film. And we're going to completely ruin for Alan, because screw you, Star Trek guy. Yeah. <laughs> Ray could only be Luke's daughter. Oh! <laughs> Oh. Alan, if you didn't see that coming a mile away, yeah. that came 12 parsecs away. <laughs> I'm glad you use that as a form of distance and not a form of time. Thank you. I, I'm split on this. I still don't know who she is. Everything points to it being his daughter. Absolutely it does. But... I'm not entirely sure. Uh, this is from uh, the UK. A Brazilian Star Wars fan has started a petition for the return of George Lucas as director. No. The petition appears to target Episode Nine in particular for Lucas' return, referring to the franchise founder as the father of Star Wars. 
Um, this is in Brazil, uh, in Brazil, so it's in Portuguese. It is translated into English mechanically uh, and directed at the new franchise owner Disney, as well as Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy. It reads, bring back George Lucas for the Star Wars movies. Put the father of the franchise as director of Episode Nine. We really want this, please. George Lucas as director of Episode Nine would be the perfect way to end this new trilogy and make an epic farewell between the father of Star Wars and the whole universe of the galaxy far, far away. Where were you last week when we discussed how he was largely responsible for destroying the Star Wars franchise? I'm just saying that there's 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 we talked about people who were going to who were deliberately contrary. And here we go. Yeah, the last thing you want is to go out. I, I have to contribute something to this conversation because I didn't see the movie. All right, Spock. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Live long and prosper. You know what? I uh, I think George has said his goodbye, and his goodbye was gracefully done. <laughs> yes, white slaver graceful. Very graceful. You know, I, I think he went, I'll take my $4.2 billion and catch you later, guys. Like, that's like... I think he needed mm-hmm. to go. I think he's too angry about it, and he's too—he's—he uh, he's, he got beat up, man. He got beat up hard, and getting beat up like that isn't easy. He's going to be dead by the time <laughs> episode nine comes. Along. He even suggested himself that he's already an old man, and, yes. and chances are, a decade from now, that he's not going to be in any—in uh, not going to be any position, or not going to be interested in putting the remarkable effort, as I'm sure you can fully explain, is required to actually put a motion picture together. Well, you know, and, and it, he's been involved in it for so long that I, I really think that, you know, you got to move on as an artist, man. You just got to just leave it and go. You know, you you've, like. Well, this is my theory. He's not an artist. He's not at all. You, you are a, a screenwriter. You know what it takes to, to, to write something that's worthy of being put on the silver screen. And this was a man who back in 1977 wrote a six chapter script that Hollywood said, you know what, how about we pare that down to one because everything else is crap. Right. Yeah. Well, it proved that that was right. But the but I, 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 I got to say this about George Lucas, though, man. It's like even though he's gone and even though he's uh, done with Star Wars, I got to give him his props in the fact that he has got a bigger set of balls on him than just about any filmmaker I've ever come across. But by what definition? The, the definition that he destroyed my childhood memories of certain films by going back and, and tweaking them again? It's like that artist who, who can't put the paintbrush down. Well, yeah, I agree with that. And that's why I'm glad he's gone. But I'll tell you this, though. Look at him as far as uh, being a guy who, you know, just just was unrelenting to his own vision. And he said, I'm going to make the movies, regardless if they suck or not, I'm going to make the movies I want to make. Just it's like a good musician will say, I'm going to write the songs I want to write, you know, and he never bowed to anybody. He never caved to anybody. And he, in defense of him, that's a big thing. And now, but the thing is now he's saying, even what I was saying is like, now he has taken that same thing and gone, I'm going to go make the movies I want to make. And no one's going to see them. I might invite the friends over and go, Hey, look at the million bucks I spent on this. What do you think? And they'll go, great, it's awesome, George. And then they'll leave his house and go, geez, George's still making movies for nobody. George's home movies. That dude is true to his vision, man. And no matter if it stinks or not, it's, it's what he wanted to do. And I got to applaud him for that. I really do. So what's the film you've got working on that you've got coming up? Well, I'm, curr- I'm currently at work on Fifty Shades of Grey 2 and 3. So uh, I can... No, you're not. Yeah, I am. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing it, though. <laughs> but but I, can tell you, I can tell you there's a significant amount of profit in erotica novels. So, you, so you're seriously working on the scripts for those? Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I don't write them, but I, uh, 
I do work for the producer of the show. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I've got eight books of steamy uh, of steamy chick stuff. So if we, seriously, if we need to connect, we should really connect because I've got thousands of pages. Well, Erica Erica Mitchell is a lovely gal. She's a she's a really nice gal, and she's a, definitely someone you'd probably want to connect with as well. All right. So here's what you do: go to uh, go to Amazon and look up Emmy Cross E M M E. Okay. Cross. I will. And uh, you'll see what's uh, what's available. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So funny. Matt Granger's fingerprints can be found all over Man of Steel, X Men Two, I Robot, among others. Matt, great having you with us. Thank you. Thanks again, guys. Okay. Thanks. Want to write for the big show? Go to geeksandbeats.com slash newsroom to learn about how you can be a part of the world's most popular podcast. Do it for the glory and the love of the game. If we paid you any less, you'd be paying us. Geeksandbeats.com. Skirting unpaid intern laws for over 75 years. Ziggy played guitar. Jamming good with weird and One of the most popular segments on geeksandbeats.com and on the podcast as well was our look back at the life of David Bowie and a star man apparently is getting his own constellation. I think this is kind of cool. You'll never find this in an official star catalog, but a bunch of people in Brussels wanted to give David Bowie a star man tribute. They wanted to find his own constellation. So they contacted a public observatory And they registered seven stars that, if you trace them, they form Bowie's Thunderbolt, the kind that you see on his face on the Aladdin Sane album. Mm -hmm. And he will take a symbolic place along the 88 existing constellations. Uh, And the stars, if you're interested, are Mm -hmm. Sigma Libre, Spica, Alpha Virginis, Zeta Centauri, SAA204132. Oh, that one's my favorite. Yeah, I've got to run to naming it. And the Beta Sigma Octanus Trianguli Australis. Okay. Uh, that's all in the vicinity of Mars. <gasps> Which is perfect. I know. Starman, life on Mars, all that stuff. For the spiders. So I don't think that you'll actually be able to look up into the sky and see it because... It's sort of in, you know, it's it's camouflaged in a star field. Well, this isn't the only um, a push to sort of memorialize David Bowie. Apparently in Britain, they want to put him on the 20-pound note. Yeah, they've got a new 20-pound note coming out this spring. It's scheduled to come out with a new face on it. And there's been a lot of debate as to whose face should be on the note. And there is a petition on right now uh, that says that it should be Bowie. They've got about uh, 12,000 people. Fans want to rename Mars after David Bowie, as well as put him on the 20-pound note. And as it stands right now, they've got uh, quite the quite the number of signatures for this petition. Yeah, 12,000. I don't know if that's going to mean anything, because usually you have to be a monarch or a politician. Right. Or some kind of really big ancient historical figure to make it onto some currency. Uh, I can't... But why couldn't he be the first rock star on money? You know, what's rather interesting is that there were certain places within Britain where they have like local currency in order to encourage um, spending money within a, a, a certain business area. And there is actually Bowie money. Oh, really? Yeah. You can only use it. I can't. It's in Brixton, maybe. I don't know. But you can only use this, this Bowie notes, Bowie currency. Bowie bucks? Bowie bucks um, in, in this, you know, in, in certain stores. It's kind of like Canadian Tire money. Yes. Okay. Pop quiz, Mr. Canadiana. The person on the face of Canadian Tire money. His name is? It's Jock something, isn't it? Oh. I don't know. Way off. Who? 
Sandy McTire. <laughs> is it really? That is the name of the character drawn on the Canadian Tire Money. I didn't know that. Of which they're phasing out in favor of plastic now. I know. And I went to get gas at a Canadian Tire gas bar today and I had the the little membership card. I forgot it. And, you know, it's like, but, you know, I'm getting Canadian Tire Money now and I'm stuffing it in my back pocket and it's for five cents or ten cents. And it's like, ah, whatever. I just tossed it into the recycling bin, which is probably a stupid thing to do. But, you know, if you have you know, a loyalty card and you, you, you just present it every time. Like I do with my, uh, petrol points card or my aeroplane card. It's, it makes sense. Now, um, radio legend. And, uh, before he was a radio legend, uh, he was a comedian. I'm talking about Ted Wallachin. Do you know of who I speak? Yes. I used to work with Ted many years ago. I worked with Ted uh, when he was just getting into radio, when comedy was still his thing. One of his great routines was taking Canadian tire money down to the United States and telling people that was our president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, on the topic of petitions for David Bowie, some petitions uh, are more effective than others. Change.org is the place to go for petitions, particularly if you want to make a big difference in government. At least that's how it was set up. This petition at Change.org is a petition not to any government. It's a petition to God. What? To bring Bowie back to life. <laughs> <laughs> Titled, Say No to David Bowie Dead. Oh, you've got to send me that link. It has... 8,000 petitions, signatures to the 10,000 petition goal. <laughs> I love it. See, God, see, you and I should have thought of this. Oh, update. I, I just hit refresh. It's now at 11,067 supporters, and they want to get to 15,000 now. Why didn't you and I come up with this? Now, in retrospect, it's... Oh. Yes, it's a very simple letter. Usually what you do is you fill out a letter on change.org to the organization or the government for which you want to see change. And in this case, it is very simple. It reads, letter to God or whom it may concern. <laughs> Say no to David Bowie dead. Andrea Nutella started the petition with a single signature, a single signature, and now she has more than 11,000 supporters. Should we do one for Glenn Fry? Um... As much as some people like the Eagles and Glenn Fry, I don't need to, to, to hear more of his music. Probably won't have the same effect as a, as a Bowie petition. Same thing with... Uh, no. We could do one for Lemmy, although I think the time has passed. The reason why the Bowie one might actually work is Andrea Nutella is based out of Rome, Ooh. which, as we know, is also home to the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Maybe she could... So uh, maybe she's got an in. All right. I want you to uh, send me that link, and we will spread the link around the world via the Geeks and Beats network, and we will see if we can push this uh, to well over 100,000 signatures. I mean, God can't ignore it. When we were young, the future was so bright. Whoa! The old neighborhood was so alive. And every kid on the whole damn street Whoa! was going to make it big and every beat. Now the neighborhood's cracked and torn. Whoa! The kids are grown up, but the lives are Millennials so uncool musically. Did you see that article that's being passed around? It's being passed around mostly <laughs> among baby boomers. 
Right. It's very clickbaity. It, it is very clickbaity. But if you read the article, it's rather interesting. We should, we'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. My favorite thing, though, on your website is the photo illustration that goes with it is a screenshot from The Simpsons. Old man yells at cloud. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because that's really what we're talking about. It, it really is kind of a get off my lawn type thing. But, you know, I've been involved in a number of focus groups where we get millennials in a room and we talk to them about music. And it's rather interesting. I get the sense that these kids, and I'm sorry if I use the word kids in, a, in, in this way, but they say that they're passionate about music. But I don't think, at least the people that I saw in these focus groups, I don't think they're as passionate as previous generations were. Now, why do you say that? Because they live in an oversaturated media world. Oh, this is a high supply, low demand equation. Yeah, and they've always, they've grown up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment where music has been free and infinite. It was never a uh, something in limited supply. I was thinking about that as I was listening uh, to Roxy Music on my drive home today, and the woman who introduced me to that introduced it to me via a, an actual compact disc, something I got to physically hold in my hand and review the liner notes. You can't do that now. No, it's not the same thing. And I remember there were occasions where I was listening to the radio and the DJ comes on and says, oh, a brand new song from blank just came in. And you'd call your friends and you'd gather around the radio and you'd listen to it together. It'd become a communal experience because the only place you could get that song was on the radio at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not just that they're not passionate about music. It's just that they're not passionate about anything. Because they are so overwhelmed by the choices on the planet when it comes to media, entertainment, and information. Now, this is only, and I, I'm not being disparaging with this, with this uh, observation. I don't mean to sound like an old guy telling you to get off my lawn. I'm looking at it from a sociological point of view, and I'm wondering if this group of, uh, I guess it was about 35 people that I was dealing with, I'm wondering if they are representative of millennials at large. If you've got an opinion on this, give us a call at area code 323-319-NERD. That's 323-319-NERD. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We have two new co-producers. Excellent. Thank you for joining the team. Cole Novak and Daniel Greer. Yes, thank you very much for joining the team. They did so by shelling out $25 per episode. And the neat thing about it is we're using Patreon as a way of you supporting the big show. And you can set a, a limit, a lifetime limit, so that we don't rack up your credit card every time we put out an episode. If you don't want to drop 25 bucks and get us to talk about you on the show and get your name added to the album artwork that you can print off, frame, and hang in your parents' basement, you can become a member of the world's worst intern program, where for a dollar an episode, 
episode. You work on the show, do absolutely no work. We pocket the cash, and it's our way of uh, getting the show uh, up and running. Benjamin Gresick, Rick C. in Oakville, uh, Peter Robel, uh, Matthew Bartram, Frank Vaveri, Christopher Potter, among others. Thank you very much for uh, supporting the big show. We do appreciate it. And you, uh, if you're listening to us on the radio, you're hearing commercials between the segments. We get none of that action. Bupkiss. So uh, the only support we get is uh, from you. We... You know, we hope that we deliver value to you. If you if we do and you think it's worth a tip, do it. And the neat thing, too, is that if you do support the show, we put your name in uh, the big virtual bin for future raffles, uh, which will be coming up a little later on. We don't have anything this week yet, do we? We don't have anything this week, but we're working on something big with some pretty good people. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, good. And the weird thing, too, was when I explained to her how we go about it, how, you know, we we talk about it on the show, we check it out ourselves, we give one away. Um, At the end of the conversation, she said, so how much? What? And I said, "I'm, I'm sorry, what do you mean? She said, how much money? I said, oh, no, 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 no money. Um, and she explained that in this world, this is becoming increasingly common where we'll talk about your product, but you have to pay us to do so. And it just made me feel icky thinking about that. I talked to somebody who works at a promotions company, a publicist company at uh, a concert last week. And uh, she said that she was starting up a division for bloggers and podcasts. And that's how they're making their money. She says that there are people willing to drop coin for bloggers and podcasters to mention their product. Now, we don't do that. No, I wouldn't have a problem with that if we made sure that we stopped down and said, this is a commercial. We are reading a commercial announcement. Right. But to slide in advertorial mm-hmm. you know native advertising i don't that's not us yeah the uh, the edward r murrow in me just sort of bristles at that whole thought let alone the fact that my uh, my friends up at uh, ctv news would probably have a big problem with yeah, that too. yeah i don't uh advertorials, paid sponsorship content, all that kind of stuff. That's not the way the big show works. Promoted posts and all that sort of... I don't know if that's what this program is all about. So we want to thank again Cole Novak, Daniel Greer, and and all the interns for helping keep the show on the air because there are costs associated with it, uh, and that's the way the big show works. Excellent. Okay. You found the best non-Scotch alternatives for Robbie Burns Night. Yes. uh, I am on my way to the Far East again in uh, just a little bit. I know. You're screwing with our schedule for recording, my friend. I, I know. I'm, uh, I'm off to London on Saturday night, and then on Tuesday, I'm off to Singapore. So that's good because I can maybe pick up some of these uh, wonderful Japanese whiskeys. I'm looking at this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japanese Harmony. That's only 54 pounds, which is what? About well, double that. 120 Canadian? Call it that. Yeah. Uh, Yamazaki Distillers Reserve, which I've never had. Oh, you know, I've got a bottle of that. Uh, here's one that I don't have. See, the thing is really, what's really cool here is that these are all Japanese whiskeys that are, you know, not scotches. You can't call them scotch because... They're not made in Scotland. Yeah, exactly. So, right. uh, and these are really, really good. I consider myself to be something of a, a connoisseur of Japanese whiskey. See, my problem is that I have a brother-in-law who has scotch in his home. And when I go over, he's like, Michael, would you like a scotch? And then he, then he would sit there and he'd watch me as I, as I tried to be polite and down this thing. So when someone gave me a, a bottle, I put the effort, it sounds weird to say, into learning how to drink scotch. And the sidebar is, is that my family has a history of alcoholism. I, I don't really drink. Oh, that's right. And so, you know, I've got the martini right here. Mm-hmm. We're having a good time. I'll have one. Right. Um, but 
after that bottle of scotch, which I have to say I didn't drink all at once, but over time, after the bottle was was drained, when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I should get another bottle. Every fiber of my body went, that is a great idea. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God, there, there's the gene right there. Yeah being activated. So I back off the scotch. So I don't really know that much about it. The Hakushu Distillers Reserve at Sainsbury's for 45 pounds, call it 100 bucks Canadian, uh, is made in Japan's Southern Alps and aged in American white oak caskets. Why? Well, what's the relevance? Um, Where you age it, the vessel in which you age it imparts a really important part of the taste the depth that you get with the overtones and the finish on it. Okay. Uh, and what would they will, what some bourbon um, distillers will do and what some whiskey uh, makers will do is they will take casks from France that were used to age sherry. And whatever is in the wood of those casks imparts itself into the whiskey, and it can be very, very good. Okay, so you've got this list here that uh, you can go to geeksandbeats.com to pull up the latest on. Is there one particular one that you're going to grab based upon this uh, independent uh, UK article? Well, since I'm going to London on Saturday night, I'm going to go to Sainsbury's and see if I can pick up one of these. This uh, Haka, Hakushu Distillers Reserve looks really good. Uh, and then there's a 12-year-old Hakushu. Let me try. The only thing I know about scotch is that the 12-year-old bottle that I bought after the 15-year-old bottle that was given to me didn't seem anywhere near as good, and that was only three more years sitting in the casket. Yeah, I try to stop uh, at 15 years. Is that a bank account issue? Uh, well, it is. No, what I'm saying is, is that anything younger than 15 years, I can tell the difference. Oh, see, I was looking at older than 15 years. I'm like, why am I dropping $200 on a bottle? Forget that. Oh, I had a, I had a shot of Macallan 40 once. Oh, my. 40-year-old. Oh, I didn't pay for it, but it was outstanding. Speaking of 40, guess who turns 40 this year? This is the bionic woman. I was in love with Lindsay Wagner. Okay, let, let's tell tales out of school here as far as your age. I figure you were probably 15 when the bionic woman went on TV. I have no idea. I don't remember. So 40 years ago, I, that's what I'm, I'm figuring. You would have been right prime in the mid-1970s uh, to fall in love with Lindsay Wagner. Yeah, and the weird thing was I looked at her as a superhuman woman. I didn't think about what she might be like in other rooms of the house. Oh, see, yeah, yeah. You you had that that sort of innocent yeah. twist to you yeah. that most of my friends didn't. Oh, really? Oh, completely crushed my innocent heart when it came to this sort of thing. Not so much the Bionic Woman, but in the mid seventies, it was Linda Carter in the in Wonder Woman. Oh, she, Linda Carter was hot. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> My favorite story about why the spinoff to The Six Million Dollar Man was not called The Six Million Dollar Woman. Have you heard this? No. 
Executives in Hollywood were concerned that if they labeled a woman the $6 million woman, people would think we were talking about a hooker. Oh, come on. Kid you not. Really? After Steve Austin had been on TV for a couple of years? It only aired for like three seasons um, and on ABC, and then NBC picked it up one year later and canceled it in 1978. But before it happened, Richard Anderson appeared in both The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman as the OSI chief. Do you remember the OSI? Yes, I did. Opera, uh, Office of Strategic Intelligence? <laughs> Office of Scientific Intelligence. Ah, okay. Yes. The actor, Richard Anderson, made a television history at the time by playing the same character on two different uh, shows and two different networks. Well, I guess that would have been a big deal back then in the era of three networks, right? Absolutely. They brought back the bionic woman in the late 90s in three made-for-TV movies, as reported uh, in our pop culture segment on geeksandbeats.com by Derek Dresser, and shows off uh, some of the um, bionic woman merchandise. Do you remember the Steve Austin 12-inch doll? I do. I remember that very clearly. And you remember that he had this creepy bored out eyeball that you could look through from the back of his head? Right. And that was his, his bionic eye. Yes. They didn't do that for the Lindsay Wagner character, the bionic woman instead, because she had the hearing. <laughs> they would instead have a little click in her head. And whenever she turned her head, you heard. Oh, did you? Re oh, see, I never had a. <laughs> I never had a Lindsay Wagner doll, did you? I did not have a Lindsay Wagner doll. I did have the $6 million man, and the very first thing I did was lose the little piece of bionics that you could pick out of his arm and put back in after you rolled down the skin. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Now, <laughs> in addition to that, Wonderland Records, a 1976 pressed vinyl titled Great Adventures featuring the story arc of the character. There was actually a, there was vinyl. There was an album? It was an album, Exciting Stories, Sound, and Music. So what what was on the album? Exciting Stories, Sound, and Music. <laughs> Is that on YouTube anywhere? Oh, yeah. Okay. Are we, we going to post it? We have. Excellent. <laughs> I got to hear this. In slow motion. I still do that every once in a while when I'm... Uh, I guess I'm showing my age. But if I'm in the backyard and I'm doing something with the dog and, and the dog does something interesting, I will... You do the bionic sound effect? The bionic sound effect, yeah. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.